Hello, and thanks for downloading this, my second podcast. If you haven't listened to my first one, then, well, why not give it a go? It's about bees and beekeeping in antiquity, which may not be topical, but at the very least, it's seasonal. Oh, and I should mention who I am, really. My name is Ancient Blogger, and I have a website, www.ancientblogger.com, which has articles and vlogs on it. I'm also on Twitter with the handle, at Ancient Blogger. Feel free to say hello. The term mixtape might give you an indication to my age, and in stark contrast to my first podcast, this one's going to be a bit of a mishmash, though with the faintest of themes running through it. We'll start with a medical topic involving anaesthetics and prosthetics. After that, it's the Greek and Roman attitudes to beards and shaving, so get the word round to any hipsters you know. Then something a bit more salacious. It's an overview of the porne, who was the cheapest prostitute in classical Athens. Finally, more soberingly, a short overview of what really happened to Julius Caesar, given that the Ides of March are on the horizon. Let's get started. One of the trickiest pub questions I've had is the, if you could live at any point and place in history, where and when would it be? I don't know where to start with that one, not because I'm faced with a dazzling array of options, but because I'm a coward. My head conjures up dates and places in antiquity, but another voice in my head simply tuts at each of them. As wonderful it would be to witness the Parthenon or run up the Palatine, I'd always be awaiting a headache or something worse, and know that pain relief was nowhere to be found. This was made more apparent to me in my studies, because I read it, my master's at Birkbeck College, and around the corner is a building with a blue plaque on it. This commemorates the first use of anaesthetic in England. It's in 1846, in case you wondered. And this, my friend, is the real crux of it. Going one step further, and doing away with headaches, what was used when real pain relief was needed? The cultures of Sumeria and Babylonia had found out that opium from poppies had anaesthetic properties, and along with the alphabet and countless other things, this knowledge spread west to Greece. The Greeks were very sold on the use of medicinal plants. Take Homer's Odyssey, for example. In Book 4, Odysseus' son, Telemachus, has arrived at the palace of Menelaus, and it's all gotten incredibly awkward. To start with, Menelaus is waffling on about how he misses Odysseus, and that he doesn't know whether he's dead or alive. Pretty soon, everyone starts crying. Fortunately, Menelaus' wife appears and saves the day. This is Helen of Troy fame, and I'm not sure whether Homer's having a bit of a joke, but he describes her as resembling Artemis. I'm unsure a goddess whose virginity was central to her character is a wise choice for Helen. I'm not shaming her, by the way, it just seems an odd comparison. That said, perhaps there's more to it than that, and I'll get to that in a bit. Helen slips a drug called Nepenthe into their wine. Homer describes it as a drug which made you unable to shed a a single tear to, quote, even for the death of his mother and father, or if they put his own brother or his own son to the sword. Sounds a bit harsh, but we are talking Greek myth here. Helen, therefore, affects the mood of the entire party, and from afar. Artemis was the archer goddess whose prized weapon was a bow. Now, the idea of indirect weaponry is important here. Like arrows, the drug takes its effect. Even more so, the user is hidden, like a hunter. Chastity aside, perhaps Helen and Artemis have something in common after all. Now, Nepenthe may or may not have been an opiate. It's argued that the symptoms, as described by Homer, somewhat mimics opiates, but it's dangerous to try and read too much into this. What's important is that the Greeks had access to substances which dulled emotional pain. The Odyssey largely features the pain of memory, of living with deeds done, but it's the Iliad where physical pain is more readily experienced. Most often, the action involves someone being very dead and their death described in detail. It may be that Homer is merely serving up dollops of gore, but I would argue that Homer is using the detail he understood. Anatomy seems to be one of Homer's very strong points. Take, for example, the fate of poor Coriolanus, who was killed by Hector. 
More to the literal point, he is killed by a spear which hits him under the jaw and comes out by the ear, splitting his tongue in the process and tearing his teeth out. I'm no doctor, but I sense that a couple of aspirin and a sit-down wasn't really what Karianis needed, rather a new face. Homer doesn't exactly do things by half in the Iliad, so it's rare to find a case where pain relief, as opposed to new body parts, was what the doctor ordered. Fortunately, we do have one such instance. In Book 4, Menelaus is injured by an arrow, and amidst the amidst the groaning, Agamemnon orders that the wound is treated and medicine administered to reduce the pain. As mentioned, the most likely source of pain relief was opium, or source from it. The Greek god of sleep, Hypnos, was associated with poppies, not only in depictions on vases, but also where he lived. According to myth, his cave was surrounded by the flower. But what about real life? What sort of injuries might this sort of pain relief help with? As you might imagine, I have one such example, and nearish, about a century after the time Homer was composing his works. At a place called Abdera in Thrace, dating to the middle of the 7th century BC, the remains of a woman were discovered with what seems like an injury to the rear of the skull, possibly caused by a ledge shot from a sling. This wasn't necessarily what made it so interesting. Remains with battle wounds are quite common. What made this different was that if this injury had been successfully operated on. The detail of the surgery appears to be quite complex. The cranial bone had been scraped and the bone fragments successfully removed. Apologies if you're eating your lunch there. Judging from the recovery growth around the area, it has been estimated the woman had lived for 20 years or so following the surgery. The ability to drug a patient, or at least dull them for a while, made more invasive surgery possible. Toward the Roman period, Pliny mentions a draught of white mandrake being used as a quite potent anaesthetic. Simply smelling it might put you to sleep and drinking too much of it would see you not wake up at all. Scary indeed. But before I move on to the next topic, I want to quickly mention prosthetics. Much like anaesthetic, we might consider these a modern option, but not necessarily so. At Capua in southern Italy, the remains of a man with a prosthetic leg were found and dated to 300 BC. To put that in perspective, this was whilst Rome was merely an ambitious tribe in central Italy. The prosthetic was for the lower leg and had supports which hopefully gave its user more comfort. But prosthetics really come to the fore with a chap called Marcus Sergius Silvus. Marcus had quite an adventurous time of it, a veteran of the Second Punic War, which was 218-203 BC. He was captured by Hamilton twice and escaped both times. He was a famed soldier. All of this would be impressive without knowing that Marcus had a prosthetic right hand made of iron. According to Pliny, this was functional, or at least in battle, as it fitted to a shield. He fought with this, and even more incredibly, had his left hand as the one holding the sword. This might seem a mere detail, but soldiers fought, generally speaking, with their right hand. The Roman army of the time, even though it was amateur, would have fought in formation. A left-hander would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Sorry about that one. I do wonder, though, did this help him, or did it hinder him, as he was fighting with people who would have been trained, or at least experienced people, fighting with the other hand, if you understand what I'm trying to say. Confusion aside, we'll move on to the next topic, and it's one which you can easily observe from any snazzy coffee establishment, where the word artisan abounds, along with vintage sewing machines and typewriters. I mean, of course, beards. I think it's fair to say... Greeks love beards. They denoted masculinity. On Greek vases, you can differentiate men from youth simply by the do they have a beard, don't they have a beard question. A Greek male without a beard was in a bit of a bad place, and this was made very apparent in the ridiculing of Cleisthenes in the Aristophanes comedy Thesmophora Zeusai. If you didn't know, the plot of the play involves sneaking Euripides into a women-only festival. He's been primped, shaved, and adorned with a wig and makeup, but he's not the only male to attend. Upon hearing that a man might be in attendance, Cleisthenes arrives to break the news. But poor Cleisthenes is depicted as very feminine himself, and not just by what he wears. His opening address to the shop woman involves him stating that, I'm a friend to you, my hairless cheeks attest. It couldn't get more obvious. The beard 
literally maketh the man. Denying a man his beard was punishment. Spartans accused of cowardice would have their shaved off. For the Spartans, the beard was so important that shaving part of it, the moustache area, was a sort of military contract made each year. It's not that clear, but Plutarch seems to think it was a yearly ritual made in deference to the ephors when they took office. But then the Spartans were always, well, a bit odd. Maintenance of beards required barbershops, and this is something Athens had in abundance. These were places where local news would be discussed and men would gossip. In Aristophanes' play Wealth, one character refuses to believe that another has suddenly accrued a fortune based purely on the fact that he hadn't heard it at the barbers. It was a credible media outlet. That's as topical as I'll get. Athens may have been famed for its olives, but it certainly had an impressive grapevine. But it wasn't just idle gossip which might do the rounds. The year was 413 BC, and Athens was at war with Sparta. A few years earlier, it had sent a large resource of men and ships to Sicily. This is known as the Sicilian expedition, and possibly worth a podcast on its own. A customer wanders into a barber shop in the Piraeus, Athens' great harbour. As he sits down, he mentions the disastrous outcome the expedition had met. It's two generals dead and countless men captured. The barber panics and runs to Athens to raise the alarm, because, as you've probably guessed, no one knew this had happened. Initially, the officials didn't believe the barber and tortured him, in case he's just making mischief. But soon others arrived bearing the same news. The tragedy of the Sicilian expedition soon became horribly apparent. Okay, I'll level with you. It's Plutarch who states that the news was first heard in a barbershop. But even Thucydides, who was a contemporary to it, states that the news gradually arrived. Remember, news was normally delivered by official messenger. In such an instance, with the expedition wiped out, there was no formal way of it being heard. So it's quite plausible that it would have been first heard amongst the barbershops which were pretty good at capturing the local gossip information. If you feel sorry for the barber, by the way, be grateful you weren't the barber to Dionysus of Syracuse. Dionysus was a real tyrant and came to power at the end of the 4th century BC. His barber foolishly said it was he who had the power in Syracuse, as he held a razor to Dionysus' neck each day. Dionysus had him crucified. Seems to have really gotten to Dionysus, though, as after this, he got a bit paranoid and wouldn't allow anyone else other than his daughters to shave him, and fearing even them, ditched the razors and used red-hot walnut shells to singe in place of trimming. Now that, my friends, is truly artisan. Apart from the opportunity for a juicy story, this sets everything up quite nicely, as it was from Sicily that the first barbers travelled to Rome from. It's generally agreed that around 300 BC, a chap called Publius Ticinius Minus arrived in Rome with barbers from Sicily, and the fad caught on very quickly. This was largely because the Romans liked to be different. Shaving was a great way of not being like the Greeks and being even less like the hairy Gauls to the north. A long, unkept beard became the social no-no. They did, however, share one idea with the Greek, and this was the idea at the time which you had your first beard marked a really important transition. The Romans had their own celebration. It's called the Toga Virilis, but being Romans, they were soon able to make their first shave a celebration and named it the Deposito Barbe. In this rite of passage, the shavings would be dedicated to a god. In true form, the Emperor Nero went full Liberace and had his stored in a golden box studded with pearls and dedicated it to the capital. Not all emperors celebrated this in their teens, though. Augustus had to wait until he was 23. Augustus's barber, a freedman called Licinius, set the trend for barbers as mild celebrities. A slave called Zethis had his most important client, Aulus Plautius, sighted on his headstone, and in case you didn't know, he led the invasion of Britain under Claudius. Obviously, this really got under the skin of people like Juvenal, who moaned that simply barbers might crew millions, but it also annoyed the more stoical. Seneca is angry at those in the bars who plucked armpits because of the constant shrieking. I'll be careful about how I say this, but plucking was really quite a thing. Julius Caesar swore by it. Finally, we move to the most hussute of emperors, Hadrian. In AD 117, 
Hadrian was at the zenith of Roman society and sported a quite fantastic beard. Ironically, this wasn't some new fashion being set. Apparently, Hadrian had a very poor complexion and his beard covered this. There was also the suggestion that it referred to his Philhellenic nature. Hadrian really, really liked Greek culture and everything to do with Greece. Above all else, though, it does underpin how fashion is cyclical. But some things never change, and up next I'll be given a brief overview of one such example. After all, it's not called the oldest profession in the world for nothing. In my first year at uni, which seems closer to the 5th century by the day, we were charged with writing an essay where we could choose any title we wished. I'd realised by this point that I wasn't the smartest in my class, and so needed all the help that I could get. My fellow students had decided upon what I considered quite standard essay, standard essay titles such as Was Athens Democratic? Now, duplicate this 30 times over, and you're chilling the heart of any lecturer having to mark it. So I I decided upon choosing something else which might stand out a bit and at least give my poor lecturer a break and if that led to a few extra marks for being different then all the better for it and my essay choice was prostitution in classical Athens. However I hadn't really grasped the cause effect relationship fully and though I scored a decent mark the hour I sat with an elderly professor who looked like my nan going over what was quite crude content and even more graphic vase images still haunts me today. Neither of us left that room quite the same. If you're interested, by the way, in reading a bit more, I suggest James Davidson's Courtesans and Fish Cakes, which was a great introduction to that side of things in Athens, and it was readily grabbed from my bookshelf when I, when I decided to do this podcast. Anyway, I'm charging by the minute here, so I'll, I'll get on with it. In the 5th century BC, it's fair to say that Athens had a burgeoning economy. Being a major trading hub, possibly the major trading hub in the Aegean, meant you could buy nearly anything, and sex was just one such commodity. The association between trade and sex is made most obvious when we consider the porne, the cheapest and most common prostitute. The name is thought to have derived from the verb panemi, meaning to sell. In some distant podcast, I'll look at the other types of prostitute out there, because the porne wasn't the only option available. Prostitution was legal in Athens, and taxes collected from brothels. The officials involved in this were the Astinormoi, who set the prices to Dracula in case he wondered. They were also largely responsible for the cleaning and upkeep of the streets, and here it's we find the Pornay working her trade. Nicknames for the Pornay include Bridgewoman, Runner, Walker, Alley Treader, and even Foot Soldier. This is because both Pornay were working outside. We can be a bit more specific. Certain areas seem to have become synonymous with Pornay. The Piraeus, the Athenian harbour, and the Karemakos were two such areas. The harbour seems an obvious choice. It had a large supply of potential customers, and even in modern times, the docks have a certain reputation to them. The Karemakos is more interesting. It's in the northwest of the city and includes an area inside the city walls as well as outside it. The area in the city walls was a potter's quarter, and it's where we get the word ceramic. It's also where Socrates spent much, much of his youth, though probably not doing what you're thinking. Outside the city walls, the area featured a large cemetery, and though this was heavily associated with the porno, it's also where Pericles delivered his famous funeral oration. Quite a contrast, I'm sure you'll agree. The porno wasn't just restricted to the great outdoors. It's no surprise that brothels were many in Athens, and it would be the porne that you'd find there. Our evidence for an Athenian brothel is largely 4th century, but we can be relatively confident that it was pretty much the same in classical Athens too. There's also a twist to it, which I'll come to later. It seems that upon arriving, the customer would choose from the porne stood out in front of him. One account has the porne even singing for his custom. This might seem bizarre, but in Aristophanes' play, The Assemblywoman, a porne sings from her doorway for custom. And this isn't the only time music plays a part. Some porne played the flute and acted as flute girls. These women would normally accompany the Komos, which is a group of young men who were travelling between symposia. It's argued that these were separate from porne, and I'm keen to avoid getting tied up in easy classifications. So I'll leave it there. Point being is that music and sex had a link. 
The same account goes on to describe how you almost pulled inside as you walked past, which sounds a bit like a poor excuse. Worse still was the nicknames the Pornay had for their clients. Young clients were called Little Brothers. Older clients, Little Daddies. I think we'll just leave it there with that one. Once the customer had chosen, the two departed for what was probably a very small room somewhere, and you can I'll leave you to guess the rest. I was generally surprised to learn that one building, excavated in the Karamikos and thought to have been a brothel, had around 20 small rooms. It wasn't the capacity of the brothel which was the most interesting aspect. Later excavations of the building found 100 loom weights used in spinning. There are several vase images which show a woman sat spinning whilst being approached by a man, and these had never really been fully explained. Did they show a male fantasy of the virtuous wife being seduced? The most convincing argument I've read centres on the Greek word for brothel, agasterion. In truth, it doesn't really mean brothel. The definition is either factory or place of business. Sure, there were other words which I won't repeat here, but the standard word doesn't have the associations with sex we might have expected. It could well have been that some brothels were also factories for weaving linen and cloth. The relationship between the roles is left to guesswork. Perhaps some women worked just on the spinning wheels, perhaps some were porne and did some spinning, or perhaps some did both. Whatever the mix was, it was a nasty life. As a woman in ancient Athens, you were invariably second class, but here you were barely even that. You were a cheap commodity at best. Now, I was going to leave the podcast here, but I noted the date. Soon it's the 15th of March, which means everyone with a blog on ancient history or a Twitter account will be posting something, something, beware, something. And that's not a criticism. I'll be putting something up on my website. Perhaps we can quickly dispel a few myths about Julius Caesar, what he said and how he died. In 55 BC, Pompey dedicated a large theatre complex in the campus Martius, which had taken seven years to build. It was one of Rome's earliest non-wooden structures and must have been very impressive. Behind the large theatre, a garden stretched out with porticos, and at the very end of this building, the Curia of Pompey was housed. This was a general use building, but in 44 BC, it was utilised by the Senate to hold meetings, and it was here that Caesar met its end. In 2012, a Spanish team claimed to have found the exact spot where Caesar's fell. A concrete structure, three metres wide and two metres high, was placed on the orders of Augustus to condemn the assassination. This place is at the bottom of the Curia, most likely while he was sat at a chair. The conspirators weren't exactly going to be carrying swords around with them, and something far easier to conceal in the folds of a toga would do the job much better, and there just so happens to be a, such a weapon in ancient Rome. It's called a pugio, and it's a dagger around 7 to 11 inches long. I'll pause for a moment here for an obvious plug. I've done a vlog on the pugio, it's on my website, and that's all I'll say. Plutarch wrote, that the pulling down of Caesar's toga was a sign for the attack, and that this may be true, it's fortuitous to know that it would be also highly recommended if you're going to attack someone with a short-bladed weapon, pull any heavy material away. As mentioned, the pugo would be a less effective against the heavy fold of a toga, and the cloth would hamper a slashing attack. Perhaps it wasn't just a sign to the fellow conspirators, but a practical opening gambit in making the attacks more effective. Casca's strike at the neck is also telling. The neck, as well as armpit and groin, were areas soldiers were trained to target. Either Casca had some training or some advice. He wasn't just the only one. The strike from Brutus was in Caesar's groin. Both sources for this... Plutarch and Suetonius, give similar opening accounts, and they both agree that what happened next was a free-for-all with a hail of strikes landing on poor Julius. The infamous words, et tu brute, they were an invention by Shakespeare. Plutarch reports that Caesar simply covered his head under the barrage, and Suetonius seems to agree with this. Both Plutarch and Suetonius seem to also agree that there were no final words from Caesar. In contrast, we are remarkably well informed about the manner of Caesar's death thanks to the autopsy, and this is the first one ever done. It reports that he received 23 stab wounds. Of these, only one was a fatal wound, and this one was to the chest. It's more likely, though, that Caesar died from massive blood loss. So it wasn't just the aftermath of Caesar's death, which was a bodbath. And there we have it. 
I've covered anaesthetics, prosthetics, beards, prostitution, and murder. Quite a fair bit of work there, so I'm off for a well-deserved cup of tea. As mentioned, feel free to say hi to me on Twitter, at AncientBlogger, or drop by my website, www.ancientblogger.com. Suggestions and feedback are always welcome. I'll go now and wait for the muses to inspire me. Until then, take care and keep well.